0: Global economic growth in 2023 will be hampered by two main factors. The war in Ukraine, which continues to affect commodity prices and disrupt supply chains, and monetary policy tightening by central banks, which continue to fight high inflation. Is the global economy heading for recession in 2023? What does the coming year look like for economies in Asia-Pacific? And how should investors in the region position themselves to weather the storm? Welcome to Asia Perspectives from Economist Impact. I'm Piotr Zembrowski. This is the fourth episode in a five-episode series, Shelter from the Storm, Investing in the Era of Uncertainty. In the first episode, we looked at the trade disruptions due to the COVID pandemic. The second focused on the effect the slowdown in China's economy may have on the region. And in the third, we looked at climate change and the risks it presents to the economies in Asia. Today, we look at global macroeconomic factors and the risk of a global recession. The podcast series is supported by Equities First. The opinions of our guests are their own and editorial control remains with economist impact. We have two excellent guests today. Charlie Buxton is head of investment management at the Fry Group, a British financial advisory firm with more than 100 years of history. He has over 10 years of experience in investment management in the UK and Asia. He joins us from his office in Hong Kong. Charlie, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, uh, Pieter. Thanks for having me on.
0: Dhruv Arora is founder and CEO of Saif, a digital investment platform. Originally from India... Dhruv spent seven years at UBS Investment Bank in Hong Kong, where he was director of ETFs and portfolio trading in global equity finance. He joins us from Singapore. Glad to have you with us today, Dhruv. Thanks for having me, Jorapita. A few months ago, at the end of 2022, the view of The Economist was that the global economy was heading for a recession. In the United States, it was expected to be mild, in Europe, more severe, and in the UK, prolonged. Since then, the outlook has become somewhat less dire. Mild winter in Europe brought down oil and gas prices. Inflation appears to be retreating. And the latest financial data from the U.S. show some resilience. In Asia, in the meantime, China has reopened for business after abruptly dropping its zero-COVID policy in late 2022. Considering all these factors, as well as the ongoing war in Ukraine and continuing monetary policy tightening by central banks, how does 2023 look for economies in Asia-Pacific?
1: I think for me, the key point there is that the situation is less dire, but we're certainly not out of the woods quite yet. And a number of risks are still at play, many an overhang from last year, namely, an obvious ones, inflation and interest rates. I think when you're looking at the Asia-Pacific regions more specifically, and outlooks are always tricky and regularly revised at the best of times, But to my mind, there is no doubt that China's surprise reopening is a fillip for both the global economy and also those Asia-Pacific economies, which depend more heavily on China as a trade partner. And So favoured tourist destinations such as Thailand and Vietnam come to mind. This should provide a welcome ballast to GDP, even if recession fears do pay out in Europe and the U.S., I think if we look specifically to China itself, obviously, we've just come off the back of the Lunar New Year, in which we saw over, I think it was over 300 million domestic tourist trips from Chinese nationals. So domestically, China's own economy should start to recover too. Although, as with all these things, I think it'll take time. We saw that in Europe, particularly after it emerged from from lockdowns. If you're going to sort of add some flavour by way of numbers to this, the IMF is pointing a more positive and resilient picture in Asia um, than it is in the US and Europe. So across Asia-Pacific, across its emerging and developing nations, it's pointing to GDP growth at 5.3%. And that's helped by China's revised expectations this year of 5.2%. So when you compare that to Europe and the US at 07 and 1.4% respectively, it looks encouraging. And then, of course, in a much sort of narrated point here has been around the excess level of savings across Chinese consumers. So clearly there should be some pent up demand to help across the Asia Pacific region more broadly. I think, though, with all of this, we also have to factor in, as you allude to, Piotr, the situation globally. And if we think whilst the markets are currently pricing in a weak dollar, uh, perhaps a more dovish approach by the Fed, certainly towards the second half of this year, that could easily change. And indeed, looking at job numbers from last week, inflation might well be stickier than markets and economies are forecasting. Now, in that case, with a strong dollar, I think that might challenge the global demand picture, but also it will challenge Asian economies, which issue their debt in dollar denomination. So that could be a key challenge. And the final point I would say is, yes, China reopening is a good thing, no doubt, but it could also add inflationary pressures on certain commodities namely oil, and I think that could have a negative overall impact on Asia. But generally speaking, I think you know we approach this one of cautious optimism.
0: Let's it with China for a while. It's uh, tourism that's one of the channels through which China's reopening will reverberate throughout the region. Are there any other channels, any other sectors that would benefit in Asia Pacific from China's reopening?
2: Yeah, I mean, we believe that Economies such as, you know, Thailand, uh, Vietnam, likely to benefit from the tourism, as we've spoken. Hong Kong, of course, uh, increased economic activity is something that we can expect. And I feel Vietnam should also benefit from uh, increased trade, one of the big trading partners, which will eventually be having a positive impact from the increased domestic demand within China. Now, I think this point was mentioned earlier by Charlie. We could expect some pressure to come uh, on the commodity space which might actually benefit economies as you know as far as Australia and maybe even Indonesia. But I think what's quite interesting to see is what would potentially happen within China. I think that's where it's going to be very exciting because what we've seen over the last maybe two years given you know the zero covid policy or the Chinese stocks were actually very deeply suppressed. And even at the slightest news of reopening, which started doing the rounds towards Q4 last year, you've seen a massive outperformance in the globally listed ETFs, whether it is the tech ETFs, whether it's the MSCI, CHI, which talks about the broader China exposure. Now you're seeing these stocks up almost about, you know, these ETFs up anything between 35 and 50% in the last three months. Now the proxy for that, the way how we see it is essentially the fact that the world is pricing in. What else can domestically you know, drive up in China? And one area which we feel is going to be a bright spot is going to be edge shares, which are actually Chinese company shares, which are listed up in Hong Kong. So I think historically, given the fact that by the virtue of being in Hong Kong, they probably have a broader global exposure. It's a much easier access point uh, for global investors, and it's quite a common technique that many investors use to actually access and you know see the proxy in the markets.
1: I think the other point to mention, of course, when you think about China and some of the ETFs that Drew mentioned, is around the more favourable, or on the surface anyway, more favourable regulatory environment. If you think back to the summer of 2021, all hell broke loose around sort of the tech uh, and the education sector and this kind of theme around common prosperity. And that seemed to have abated somewhat. So I think that's also a positive.
0: The economies in Europe and North America are still likely to stagnate in later this year, if not suffer an outright recession. That would result in weakening of global demand. Uh, how would that reverberate here in the region? Which economies and sectors in Asia are most exposed to this potential decline in demand?
1: Clearly, the interdependency between Europe and Asia and, and the US and Asia is there for all to see. I mean... Half the imports from the US come from Asia and about a third of Europe's come from Asia. So, you know, that's a significant flow of you know, goods and services into those two regions, which, you know, as you've alluded to earlier, Pieter, are arguably going through recessionary times. I think in terms of you know, those economies most exposed to the two regions, obviously not all Southeastern Asian markets will be impacted in the same way. It's possibly more export oriented economies um, like Vietnam, Cambodia, which uh, are probably more exposed with a higher share of exports to GDP. I think also looking at the tech sector that Drew mentioned earlier, areas like South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, these are all significantly exposed to global manufacturing demand. So if you think there of a slowdown across Western nations, this could also transmit to slower growth across Asia too. You know, We've seen in, in the last week or so GDP numbers from South Korea actually sinking about 0.4% between October and December in that quarter. So clearly there is some uh, cause for concern there.
0: Drew, would you like to add anything to it?
2: Charlie's covered it really well. I, I think the only thing where we perhaps maybe have a slightly different view is that we actually believe some of the Southeast Asian economies, they'll be able to manage the impact with the China reopening story. India is also an interesting market to keep in mind because of the strong domestic demographics as well as a vast consumer market. India was one of the few bright spots in the global uh, stock markets last year, where the indices were slightly in the green, so as to speak. Now, with the heavy focus on economic reform, development, favorable policies such as Make in India, there is a massive internal push to domestic entrepreneurship. And this is quite fascinating because of the regulations that were affecting China over the last maybe 12 to 18 months. You've seen a lot of capital flow, which historically for Asia would probably go into China, flowing into India. This has led to very successful startups, successful listings, job creations, of course, impacted in the last few months what's happening in the world. But generally, I think the fact that it is heavily domestic demand driven is going to be another bright spot in this environment to consider.
0: The podcast series Shelter from the Storm, Investing in the Era of Uncertainty is supported by Equities First. And now a word from our sponsor.
1: Liquidity is one of the proven strategies to manage risks in financial markets in turbulence and uncertainties. Equities First is your solution for redefined financing. For close to 20 years, we provide access to capital in 33 equity markets at favorable terms, while our partners retain 100% upside in their assets. For more information, please visit equitiesfirst.com.
0: Let's talk about investments now, perhaps, in particular asset classes. In 2022, rising inflation impacted both bond prices and companies' earnings, uh, before depressing their valuations. So it was a bad year for investors across the board, significant declines in both equities and fixed income. Although... Equities recovered a bit close to the end of the year. Inflation is now moderating. What does it mean for the markets, for different asset classes? Are we likely to see equities and bonds revert to their usual negative correlation of returns?
2: I think what made 2022 especially challenging was that both equity and fixed income markets fell in tandem, making it really very difficult to diversify portfolios. The negative stock bond correlation that prevailed much to the last 25 years had pretty much simplified what portfolio construction was. Now, with this persistently elevated inflation, aggressive, you know, Fed rate hiking cycle, there's always a fear, will these portfolios ever make sense? In our view, the falling markets have brought about a silver lining. Government bond yields and credit spreads have increased rapidly, while equity valuation multiples are now at below average levels as seen over long periods of time. The combination of rising bond yields And falling equity valuations means that expected returns for multi-asset portfolios have moved considerably higher. To take an example with numbers, the global 60-40 portfolio has a nominal expected return in the excess of 7% versus 3.3% in July of 2021. And the real expected annual return is above 4% versus the 1.2% over the next five years. Therefore, if investors are looking to achieve a particular nominal level of returns, can do so now with a lesser allocation to risky assets?
1: I think one of the lessons from last year, hopefully across all investors, has been that we can't rely too heavily on equities and bonds. Yes, they might look more appealing now, but I think the importance of low correlations across the strategies, not just equities and bonds, but also alternatives too, is really important. The regime change from the last decade is clearly in play we are clearly now in a different environment monetarily fiscally and so with that in mind it's important to ensure that you have good diversification across other asset classes too and so that might include alternatives like infrastructure commodities possibly absolute return strategies but liquid diversifiers we talked earlier about the china reopening and clearly There are some commodities there which are closely tied to that. Copper, iron ore, aluminium are good examples of that. Um, I think just on this inflation point as well, China reopening, if you're of the view that it's inflationary, and there is some debate around that. But if you're of the view that a China reopening is inflationary and you might see increased demand in the oil space, for example, then possibly holding some oil, which is currently trading at around $80 a barrel, but has been forecast to move up to around 115, 120 a barrel. You know, I think that could be a sensible hedge in the alternative space. Gold's often a divisive topic, um, particularly in this kind of environment where yields are still fairly high. But you know, from my perspective, okay, it might be less of an inflation hedge at the moment, but it's certainly got a you know an element of geopolitical hedge there. And we saw that in early 2020 when the pandemic hit, gold performed really strongly.
0: Perhaps I'll continue with you, Drew. just following up on a comment that the investment regime has changed from decade of low interest rates, cheap money to high interest rates. And how does that change the strategies or the approach to investment for the next few years with high interest rates?
2: I believe this high interest rate environment, which we are in and we expect to be, is going to be quite a fascinating change. I mean, you know, this is something which somewhere we haven't seen in in three or four decades, or at least we expect if this continues for some time, would have happened or rather has happened now for a lot of, whether you're an individual, whether you're an institution, whether you're a family office, is that your risk reward ratios have skewed a lot. So go back two years you are going to get 0% if you're a gold customer at some high tier bank, you might get five basis points. But the reality is now the average customer can get four to 5% as risk-free as they come by just putting a fixed deposit uh, with the bank. Now, the expectation is that with these interest rates already at this level, what you could potentially get out of investing in high yield bonds, or let's say corporate bonds, for example, now shoots north of eight or 9%. We're talking of like stable investment grade companies. So what we expect to happen is that, you know, in some ways we've been talking a lot about this internally, where we believe the last few decades largely belonged to equity. I don't think equity goes away. I still think, you know, it's got an element which everyone can associate, whether you're an Instagram user or a Google user, so as to speak. But I believe that the fixed income as part of your portfolio's allocation will actually increase Just by the mere fact that at the end of the day, in an environment where people are uncertain, if you can confirm and if you can get a higher return, why wouldn't you? So what I expect to happen is a higher allocation coming into fixed income portfolios. And in fact, some individuals also considering, you would hear about this 100% equity portfolios. I actually expect some people to have 100% fixed income portfolios, which, you know, as long as they are beating inflation, they have some sort of a surety that these are big companies. Let's say if it's a corporate bond and they will get the principal and the interest back at the duration will be quite a fascinating shift.
1: One thing we haven't talked about is just the impact of rate rises. And how those play out on fixed income and particularly that um, you know high yield space over the next 12 months. Clearly, and again, this is a much sort of covered point in financial press, you know, rate rises take around, I think, historically 12 to 18 months to feed through into the real economy. So how stretched those high yielding companies will be as a result of rate rises actually filtering through remains to be seen. So I think it's important to remain in the sort of slightly safer echelons of debt. And then on the point around equities, absolutely, again, they still offer good value. But I think my preference, given that I expect us to move into a slightly more volatile period over the next few months, my preference would be for sort of dividend growth stocks, because I think this will always require a slightly more disciplined management style from those companies.
0: What risks are on top of your mind right now looking at 2023 and beyond?
1: Clearly, rising interest rates and the feed through from last year is still a concern. There's all sorts of chatter around inflation and whether that's on downtrend or not, how sticky it is. Clearly, so average wages in the US are coming down or, or moderating to an extent, but there is still you know, elements of inflation there, like amongst the services sector. So look, that's a concern. As with all these things, you know, you can't you know look at macro picture without looking at deglobalization or re-globalization or slow globalization, as I think I read the other day as well. I think that's also a key point. You know, yes, China is reopening. It might shift the picture away from a you know, supply chain focused purely on China to other areas, particularly in Asia actually. You know, Vietnam has already started to benefit from companies relocating some of their supply chain away from China. And I th- I think that that as a trend might continue.
2: One of the areas where we believe is this thought about what recession really means. Now, a lot of optimism is also based on some sort of, you know, increasing demand coming out of, let's say, new economies. But the reality is a lot of this optimism is based on the reopening of certain economies such as China. But there is obviously a consensus after the last Fed meeting, a high consensus. I think the last number I saw was about 65% of the economists who were interviewed, we expect that the probability of recession in the next 12 months is very very high now how the world actually reacts to it what does this actually do to the job market do people just you know start getting a bit more conservative with their capital and how that's you know starts impacting some of the things that we expect to be positive such as you know more demand for production coming out of china because the global market's open and china can provide it yeah. these are some of the things which uh, we will want to keep a close eye on as these are some things which Unfortunately, only time will tell.
0: That's all we have time for today. Thank you, Charlie and Drew, for sharing your views and insights. I'd like to thank our production team, Bilge Arslan and Rudy Osman. And thank you to our listeners for spending time with us. Stay tuned for future episodes in the series Shelter from the Storm, Investing in the Era of Uncertainty. The series is supported by Equities First and is part of Asia Perspectives from Economist Impact. If you have any feedback or questions about this podcast or any work from Economist Impact, email us at asiaperspectives at economist.com. Please make sure to subscribe so that you receive updates when new podcast episodes become available. From the editorial team at Economist Impact, thank you for listening.